service. I like normally to begin with the crematorium because at the end of the day, death is brutal. And as the curtains draw, or if you're at the grave, and as the, the, the coffin is lowered, it really is grief. But I've seen people who come into the church sobbing, and then by the end of the service, are relaxed and accepting, and uh, in their own quiet way, thanking God that he now has care of their loved one. Hey, welcome to the Expositors Collective Podcast, episode 282. I'm your host, Mike Neglia. Uh, The voice that you heard is that of Dr. Paul Beasley-Murray. Paul has been ordained into Christian ministry in 1970. And in the intervening years between then and now, he has served as a missionary. He has served as a pastor in a few different churches. He has served as the principal of Spurgeon's College in London, and he has authored uh, many helpful books. Uh, We have a, a heartfelt and an insightful journey into the delicate and important task of preaching at funerals. And not only the preacher role of what you're going to say from up front, but also the pastoral role of how do you console grieving families or spend time with the bereaved. Uh, This conversation uh, draws on some of the insights of his recent book published by InterVarsity Press entitled There is Hope preaching at funerals, but goes above and beyond uh, what he has already published. I realize with a topic like this, maybe you don't need it this week, but we've done one other episode about preaching funerals. And from looking at the stats, it's an episode that is accessed long after its original release date. This is something people go searching for when they need it. So if that's you and you are accessing this far into the future, well, I hope it helps. And if you're one of the regular subscribers or listeners to the show, I hope that this will prepare you for those moments that are inevitably going to be coming your way in pastoral ministry. All right, I'm going to get out of your way and let you listen to my conversation with Dr. Paul Beasley-Murray. All right. Hey, welcome to the Expositors Collective Podcast. Um, You guys are in for a treat. I'm speaking with Dr. Paul Beasley-Murray. Good morning, Paul, and welcome to the show. And good morning to you. Now, I just learned this could be your first podcast interview you've ever done. Correct. Oh, what a, what a treat and what an honor. And there's so much stuff that that could be said. And you have a, a long uh, career or, or ministry um, full of experiences that touch on all aspects of the minister's um, life and, and um, interaction with congregations. But I want to speak to you about uh, your book on preaching at funerals. But before that, our common introduction question question is kind of a way for the listeners to to get to know you. So, Paul, what was your first sermon? Well, I shall never forget my first sermon. I was 16 years old and had been invited to preach at a harvest service in a village church. The pulpit was dressed with corn, flowers, and fruit. And as I began to preach, a large bumblebee began to fly around in the pulpit. 
And if ever there was a distraction to preaching, that was it. Sadly, I cannot remember the texts of my sermon. Perhaps that's not surprising, for it was over 60 years ago. But the circumstances, I shall never forget. <laughs> Whoa, that is, I've, I've not expected that. <laughs> I've never heard that before. Um, okay, what caused you to be invited? Was there some sort of um, ministry interest that you'd been showing? Uh, not often many 16-year-olds are invited to the, to the pulpit. So why, why did you get that invitation? Strangely enough, the man who took me uh, was responsible for that uh, invitation, had done the same thing to my father many years ago when my father was uh, beginning to preach. So he was an old man as far as I was concerned then. Yeah, yeah. Okay, well, I'm I'm glad. And, and estimate, how many sermons have you preached since then? I didn't warn you of this question in advance. I'll see how good your math is. How many sermons do you think you've preached? Thousands. Yeah. It's very difficult to know. Certainly. Every week I was preaching. Uh, and I said, over, well, I was ordained in 1987. So that will give you, no, not 1987, 1967. Wow, I'm getting it wrong. Yeah. So that's a good time ago. <laughs> yes. Yes. Okay. And so, so moving, moving from that onto, Kind of the the main thrust of today's today's episode. I'd like to ask, um, what was the first funeral that you ever preached at, or the first, yeah, memorial service, or whatever it was called? What was the first time that you stood behind the pulpit at at a funeral? My first funeral was in the local crematorium, and I particularly remember the moment when I pressed the button for the curtains to be drawn around the coffin, and uh, my anxiety at that time. Was I going to hit the button in the right way and all that kind of thing? But it worked. So it was a, a successful funeral. Although uh, on that particular occasion, I was wearing a dog collar. I'd been encouraged to do so. But everybody uh, at the funeral said, I look like a TV comic. And so from that moment onward, I never wore a dog collar again. Oh, was, oh, was that right? Okay. Yeah. And you said it was a successful funeral. Now, maybe that was a quip as to pushing the button at the right time at the right way. But maybe on, the, on, a, on a bigger picture, um, what? how would you define a successful funeral? A successful funeral is when I've been able to minister the grace of God to the bereaved. It's not about winning people for Jesus Christ at that moment. Well, of course, I'm there to share the good news of Jesus. It's not about uh, simply talking about the life of the deceased, although there's a place for that. It's above all talking about Jesus and the difference he can make to us in the here and now, to Christians and to non-Christians too. Yeah, yeah. And you have... Now, would you know how many funerals you've preached, or have you given thought to that? Well, again, it is many hundreds. Yeah, yeah. I've never counted them up. Yeah, yeah. And is there a bit of a of a, a spectrum? Do you think that you've preached unsuccessful funerals in in the past? And 
how have you grown from, let's say, unsuccessful um, towards successful funerals? It, it feels almost a little bit crass to be speaking about this from, from our perspective, but it's kind of a specialist conversation. We want to serve people as, as best as possible. And have you been tripped up by some of the other possible ways to, to misuse the time and to make it all about the deceased or, or all about these other ancillary options? I've had occasions when I've been when I have found myself in surprising situations, like an occasion when I discovered that there were two wives, and neither knew about one another. Are you kidding me? And one okay. was a Christian, and one wasn't. Okay. And trying to deal with that funeral service was an incredible challenge. Um, and obviously, the other challenges are when. It is a totally unexpected death. And uh, there, I remember one of my uh, assistant ministers, his uh, first child had died at the time of ch uh, childbirth. And the whole congregation was sobbing. And I had to hold things together, which involved holding myself together and not sobbing too. There's a place for tears when you're when you when you know, you're with the bereaved, but I would say that's when you're in their home, and that for me is again something which is very very important. Uh, you can't take a so-called successful funeral unless you know the people concerned, and to know people, you need to be in their homes. A phone call is not enough. Mm. Yes, yes. Now I. In in your recently published book, yeah, there there is hope preaching at funerals. The the focus of it largely is about yeah the the service itself. But towards towards the end, the appendixes uh, have been quite quite useful. And appendix four is about the the practicalities following a death. Now, for some people, this is so intuitive that that they don't need an appendix. But for others of us, this actually is is quite a a useful practice. Um, asking what sort of questions to ask about the service, um, and then even like the initial visits with with the family. Um, you said phone call is is not enough. So if we're visiting with a family, what are the sort of ways that we can actually get to know them in that initial visit? I, I'm presuming these are people that we have no relationship with, or it's only uh, a perfunctory, or we would maybe know them by name. What should the minister be doing? in that visit after a death? If I'm meeting people whom I've never met before and whose uh, loved one I'd never met before either, then obviously uh, I ask, show me a photo of your son, of your daughter, whatever the situation is. And immediately they begin to tell you about themselves and all the circumstances surrounding that. My mind goes immediately to one of those occasions when I'd had a suicide to deal with. And, and interestingly, um, at the actual service, he died when he was 21. We had a 21 different slides for each year of his life. Um, and it was in that context that then I went on to speak of the difference that Jesus could make and how even in the dark, uh, God is there 
Psalm 139. We can never run away from God. Hmm. And in yeah, you have such a such a, a breadth of experience to to pull from. And I know that we can't dive too deep into any of these one um, examples that you're speaking of um, that could even violate con uh, violate confidentiality. Or also, every situation is is so different. Uh, something that you said in the in the early pages of the book is you said that at the time of a funeral, um, first and foremost, the bereaved need a pastor, not a preacher. Uh, what what do you mean by that? What's the pastoral work that takes place um, for the bereaved, and and then how does that connect with the preaching work? Preachers relate to people differently for, compared to, to pastors. Um, it's um, it's being empathetic. Um, I can think of of one uh, funeral I attended. It was a close friend of mine. Indeed, I'd hoped this friend was going to take my funeral. In the end, uh, I was present at his. But everybody was rejoicing uh, in the fact that he'd gone to be with the Lord. And I felt worse at the end than I did at the beginning because uh, I just sensed my loss and I'd not been able to express that loss. So, you know, we have preachers there, but I wanted someone with uh, pastoral empathy to be taking that service. Mm. Yes, we um, in our community um, we just experienced a, a death uh, on Friday night, and right. um, and so on the the Sunday uh, we had had church. Uh, the son and the daughter of the, the the man who passed away, a great pillar in the Christian community here in Cork, and. And um, to to listen as many people rush to to give the 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 great news that he is with the Lord Jesus and the, to you know I I hear that it is totally true I don't disagree and and neither and neither do you but there also is a place to just be like hey listen I am I am sad with you this is like this is not a good thing that took place um, you know death is the enemy and we are sad that this took place. And he is in a, a better place, and all of those, and all of those things. So, yeah, there needs to be that pastoral empathy as well as the truth-telling uh, preacher as well. Yes, yeah, so in in the visit, you could hold someone's hand uh, if that's appropriate. You know, some men might not feel comfortable with that kind of thing, um, but it is. Uh, and the other thing, which is very important, the moment I hear of a death of a person, I go to them whatever else I've been doing. Uh, so, you know, I can't, I don't say I'll come to you tomorrow. I'm coming to you now. And, uh, you know, so it means plans you've got with your wife or whatever, you know, but Friday was always my day off. It was amazing the number of people who seemed to die on a Friday. I think God <laughs> was testing me. <laughs> but at the end of the day, it was my privilege though, to be there. And, uh, I was so grateful that God had called me to be a pastor, not least when death had occurred. Yeah. Now, is that something that you had to to learn? Now, you, you you mentioned that you specifically go on the day and that you don't make a plan to do it later on. 
Now, is that something that someone just taught you and you've always um, embodied or did you learn the necessity of that over the years? I think I've just learned it myself over the years. I mean, obviously, you read what you can, um, but at the end of the day, it's something that comes to you with the passing of the years, providing, of course, you have a willingness to learn. Yeah. What What are the disadvantages of postponing it? Um, you know, for, for myself, I, I aim to always be as prepared as, as possible. You know, even if I'm on a, a social visit with somebody, oftentimes I will, you know, make sure to think of some things in advance. I'm, I'm a bit socially awkward. And so I try hard to be prepared for all these things. It, now, let me play devil's advocate uh, or Mike Neglia advocate. Is it not better to give yourself some time to prepare your heart and soul and to have maybe a reading ready or to to walk into the room later whilst totally ready? Or is the advantage, is it irreplaceable to be there the sooner the better? I think the sooner the better. And obviously, you've done your homework in thinking through what uh, scripture would I read if um, I were to be called? And Psalm 23 is a clear favorite, isn't it? To, to read that through and even to, well, they wouldn't realize that you're expounding, but that's in effect what you'll be doing, pointing out uh, uh, that God is with us as we walk through the valley of the death, uh, this dark valley, the, the valley of yeah. death, the valley of the shadow of death. Yeah. 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 And I mentioned to you this, I mentioned this to you before we hit record, but I, I uh, planted or, or, or replanted this church when I was, when I was very young, the congregation has historically been about my age and then a little bit younger. Yeah. And so in the early days of the church, it was a lot of weddings mm -hmm. and, and no funerals. And so I got quite good at, at doing weddings and I had this existential, you know, dread or just, just knowing that, well, I'm, a funeral is going to come. And the, the tradition in Ireland where, where I live is funerals take place about three days, perhaps two days after the death has occurred. Um, there's a, a real rush to do things very quickly. Yeah. And I, I know, I knew that. And I knew that when the time came again, with kind of a younger, healthy congregation, when a death was going to happen, it would probably be unexpected. And I'd have uh, two days to to get ready and wanting to spend that first day with the family. So I, I just crammed as much as I could, whatever I had downtime, it felt like I would be kind of reading about like how to do a funeral, what needs to take place, um, knowing that I'd be the funeral director as well. And so I, I wish that I had a, a book like yours um, 20 years ago, uh, 19 years ago when I was just getting started, because I felt like I was kind of scrambling. And even with my uh, education, a lot of it had to do with just kind of biblical theology, knowing the truth about God, knowing the truth about God's word. And I didn't have any Bible college courses about funeral care or etiquette or even the pastoral um, nitty gritty of how, what to say uh, in, as you're sitting in someone's front room. Um, some of these things are maybe meant to be intuitive, but then also too, as I mentioned, as kind of a socially awkward person like me, I, I could go for some coaching. Um, so anyway, I, I've always been like reading about funeral practices and, and 
sadly, as the years have gone by, I've done a lot more funerals and it kind of feels like this season of, of church life is more funerals and less weddings um, just as, as things are progressing. So I, I certainly, I don't want to say I'm an expert. Uh, if there's one expert on this call, it's not me. It's, it's yourself. But I, I definitely want to give my hearty amen to what you said. Of you kind of do your homework in advance. Um, you don't but, put them on. But pause. my experience is that funeral customs change over the years. Hmm. So, hmm. for instance, yeah, initially here when I began as a, as a young pastor, uh, funerals often took place within a week. Okay. Now, sometimes funerals don't take place for two or three months. Wow. And that's an entirely different thing. Um, of course, Jews, as you probably know, they have to have a, a funeral within 24 hours. And then they come together for a memorial service. And another kind of, another kind of custom, which I like, is an Ethiopian custom. After 40 days, you come together with the family, particularly where the, where the funeral has taken place fairly uh, you know, with a matter of two or three days, at that stage, the family are totally numb. 40 days later on, they're ready to talk and to think not simply about their loved one, but the whole context of what death is about and so on. Yeah. And speaking of, of Ethiopia, I I know that you've spent a few years um, not in Ethiopia, but, but Zaire or, or Congo. That's uh, right. What are the what are the the funeral practices there? And in your context, did you officiate any funerals there or participate in any? No, I didn't because I was uh, a professor in the university training. Uh, well, they were men only who were heading for ministry, and my task was to teach them Greek and uh, New Testament theology. Yes, the medium of French. <laughs> okay. And so that didn't lead into a lot of no. funeral ministries. No. Okay. Well, I know that you have served in different contexts, different continents, and also in different uh, church traditions. Uh, you are a, a lifelong uh, Baptist um, who yep. is now a member and now serving within a context of um, Anglicanism. And I wonder, what do you think is the unique benefit or the gift that your Baptist heritage has given you as a, as a pastor? And then what is the gift and what is the unique blessings of Anglicanism when it comes to, uh, to funerals and ministry? I think the great advantage of Anglicanism is that they are trained to think liturgically, to have a structure and a structure which is heading in a particular direction and so on. And, uh, I was present as a, just a punty last Sunday morning at a service where the preacher, who was a pastor, I couldn't believe it, got totally lost. Uh, had no idea really what he was doing. Um, I thought, goodness gracious me. Is this at a, at a funeral service or, or a Sunday service? It, it was an ordinary Sunday morning service. Uh-huh. Okay. And it was a total disaster. It was the worst sermon I'd ever heard in my life. Paul, I was asking for the positives. <laughs> I'm trying, does happen. I'm um, trying to, to guide the conversation to emphasize the the strengths of each of each. No, I, I think you know, those of us who have not been brought up in a liturgical tradition are able 
to operate without the book, to uh, respond immediately uh, as the as we believe God is leading us. But the strength of those who have been brought up in in, in the more liturgical churches is that they know that certain things need to take place within the service. Yeah, yeah, yes. And I call that more positive. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's a more positive spin. Uh, you know, I, I actually, I, I grabbed this off my bookshelf. You know, I, I have my own copy of the, the Book of Common Prayer. Yes. And, you know, I I do refer to this. And oftentimes in in leading up to a, a funeral, perhaps, or, or, or a wedding, uh, because... You know, these guys are really good at thinking through church services. You're you're definitely right. There is a direction to to all of it. And is is this kind of you saying that that you, Baptists would tend to not get lost in the middle of the sermon because a whole lot of thought has been put into the sermon, and our Anglican brothers and sisters have put a whole lot of thought into the the service from beginning to end. Yes. I wrote a book called Faith and Festivity, which was all about worship. They were actually uh, my my lecture notes really to my students at Spurgeon's College, where I was principal. And, uh, you know, it was amazing how much of what I was sharing was was totally new in the ex- to, to the experience of these would-be ministers, would-be pastors. Hmm. Hmm. And... To, to to kind of cram this back into our, our funeral conversation, what thoughtfulness and on what planning should go into, yeah, the the entirety of the service? Again, this this book is about the subtitle is preaching at funerals. Yeah. Um, but but what should we know about the planning of a funeral service from, from end to end? Well, we 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 begin seeking God's help through uh, a prayer at the beginning. Well, if if it's church uh or, or Christian people, you, you begin with a, a, a hymn, or maybe, in fact, the, the people concerned would like a, a hymn. After five, at that stage, it's the traditional hymns that people uh, will want. And uh, you give an opportunity for words to be said about the deceased. I'm always very careful about eulogies, because sometimes I th- think I, I knew the person and discover that I didn't. I remember I talked about one particular old lady whose hand I'd held as she died, and I thought she was a dear soul. And someone came up to me afterwards and said, you know, she was a bitch, don't you? Um, So uh, I prefer not to be the person giving the eulogy. Uh, My task is is to be preaching the sermon, which will begin, obviously, with my saying one or two hopefully nice things about the person. Yeah. Uh, But then leading on to speak of Jesus. Yes. And after that, having prayers in which we thank God for the difference that he makes and pray that uh, this may be experienced, not simply by those who have been bereaved, but everybody who's present. Yeah. Yeah. And length, how long should a funeral last? Obviously there's there's circumstances, but like from end to end, do you have a, a, a guideline? Have you thought about the, the length? An hour max. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes if you're in a crematorium, then you're actually given, you know, 20 minutes max or whatever. Absolutely. And certainly, you know, ideally if I'm, if I'm dealing with a Christian person, 
I will want uh, both uh, a church service and also a crematorium service. I like normally to begin with the crematorium because at the end of the day, uh, death is brutal. And as the curtains draw, or if you're at the grave, and as the, the, the coffin is lowered, it's, it, it really is grief. But I've seen people who come into the church sobbing, and then by the end of the service are, are relaxed and accepting and uh, in their own quiet way, thanking that the, uh, God that he, he now has care of their loved one. Yeah. Yeah, what a what a thoughtful guiding. Yeah, not just of the day, but of the service itself. To if it yeah starts at the crematorium, then to to end in the church. That's that's thoughtfulness. That's stewardship yeah. of of the day. Uh, yeah, most of my funerals have not actually been in crematoriums uh, in Ireland. They don't cremation is rather a new practice in Ireland. There's only I think I think three crematoriums in the whole country. Um, so most of the funerals that I've done have not been there, but but some have. And I tell you, I know you, you mentioned pushing that button. I, yeah, I, I know all too well. Yeah. The, the, the pain of pushing that button and knowing that when I push this button, it's going to make everybody cry. And, and the, the solemnity that comes with that button of those curtains being closed on the kofta. And that's, that's the end of that person's body. And there's a real solemnity to it. And then, yeah, to steward people into a, a, a church, which can be a very wonderful transition if done well. Yes, but as I think of of pushing the button, in crematory where I've been, very often the name of the deceased is on the uh, pulpit, as if the person offici- officiating at the, at the funeral doesn't know their name. But the reality is that has sometimes been the case. Christian ministers have been so casual about uh, what they're doing. Yeah, and may that may that not be be the case. Um, going back to the the time, you you said that the the service should be an hour, and and in the book you say that the the sermon part of that you don't advise going beyond ten minutes. Again, it varies the situation. Yes, of course. If it's a suicide, ten minutes is more than enough. Okay, but. Whereas if you're you're dealing with an older person, you know th- there is more time, and I, I would then happily be twenty minutes, but not more than that. Okay. My my uh, PhD supervisor was a guy called F. F. Bruce, uh, one of the key evangelical uh, scholars, and uh, he used to say to me, "If you've got uh, something to say." 20 minutes is quite enough. If you've got nothing to say, you need at least 40 minutes. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That will provoke some of your hearers. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're a 40-minute bunch. <laughs> it's hard to disagree with F.F. Uh, F. Bruce. He's a yeah, uh, a, an esteemed man, and I'm glad that you got a chance to... He also to... said that theology has its fashions. It's like millinery. You know, if I knew what the word millinery meant, that reference would make a, what's what's millinery? Hats. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay. Well, I'm wearing one now, but um, <laughs> a lady's hat. Yes. Yes. Uh, yes. 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 
<laughs> okay. Okay. Um, so 20 minutes max aim towards 10, um, 40 minutes, never. Now what's the role of, of like of hope, or let's say the, the hope of the resurrection at, at funerals. I, I own two of your books. One is, is there is hope. The other one is the, the message of the resurrection and the, the message of the resurrection literally flows through uh, this book on, on funeral sermons. Um, what, in what ways should the resurrection be present in a funeral service? They seem polar opposites, but yet you probably see them linked together. Is that right? I would try to ensure that the closing hymn was always a hymn or a song of resurrection, because that is the ground of all our hope, is it not? It's true that the Apostle Paul said that we preach Christ crucified, mm -hmm. but it was a Christ crucified and risen. And uh, that's the difference. And as you say, one does very much lead to the other. Mm -hmm. But at a, at a funeral, though, I am not trying to persuade people of the truth of Christ's resurrection. For me, at that stage, that is a given. Okay. Okay. And maybe a you know towards the closing question of this is is this is this relevant regardless of the state of the person in in the coffin um if the person is a believer do you preach on the resurrection and if the person is as far as we know an unbeliever is the message of the resurrection still present the message of the resurrection is still present even when they're an unbeliever, but we can personalize that assurance if it's uh, a brother or sister in the faith. Yeah. Have you any advice on, yeah, preaching at a funeral service of someone who, as far as we know, is um, did not enter into heaven? How, how can that be addressed in a way that is tactful and careful? Should it be addressed at all? And who are you speaking to and how do you speak in those circumstances? It is not for me to be the Lord and judge a person within a funeral service. Um, I know that Jesus is the one and only way. And I can talk about Jesus being the way. Mm -hmm in the context of a non-Christian service, uh, of a funeral for a non-Christian person. But uh, I still cannot declare that that person will not uh, be with the Lord. Heaven knows we don't know what was going through their minds Certainly. in closing minutes or hours of their lives. Certainly. Hence, when, you know, when we're present with a dying person and they're not speaking, people sometimes uh, assume that they are, to all intents and purposes, no longer with us. Of course, the last thing that goes is their sense of hearing. Oh, and so you are aiming to pastor the people in the room and, and playing the role as a, as a minister representing God, yeah. but yet God is God and, and you are not. And exactly. so you speak the truth to the congregation and maybe allowing the, the mystery to to linger or you're not there to to make decisive statements about the 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 person who is going into the ground there are some things that we just do not know and isn't is that not true 
of the doctrine of atonement. There was one scholar who said that we can only approach the cross in darkness. Mm. We have our theories, mm. but there is a limit. Yeah. Well, as we as we close, I just wonder, is there anything else? Like what what else do you want the, the hearers to know? Um, maybe some people have gone back into the archives and they've they've Googled funeral sermon advice. Um, what what would you like that individual to to hear uh, on preaching funerals? Be loving. Be loving. Exhibit God's love. And, uh, you know, love is catching, isn't it? And through, and through the way in which we take the services, people can catch something of Christ and may find him for the very first time. That's our desire, is it not? Yeah. Or to experience him in a new way. Yeah. Well, yeah, thank you. Thank you very much. Um, there'll be a, a link in the show notes for uh, There Is Hope, Preaching at Funerals. Um, now, to uh, final, final, just kind of to cram this in, you, you spoke about uh, Be Loving. Um, there's other services that you have officiated plenty of, um, ones that are more like overtly loving, uh, which is uh, wedding ceremonies. Um, I know that you also are passionate about communicating well the gospel of Christ at at weddings and you're even working on a book on it at the moment uh, any way to get a preview of your next book and communicating <laughs> the love of God at these ceremonies of romantic love yes I I have written a manuscript which I'm trusting IV people eventually publish called uh, there is love ah preaching at weddings. And they are obviously totally different. They're very happy events, mm -hmm. but you still need to speak of God and uh, and not just run through a whole series of jokes. I mean, yes, obviously, uh, there will be the lighthearted jokes with which you begin, mm -hmm. uh, but uh, there's a serious side too. And I think, again, people need to, to be helped because just as I've discovered, there are lots of books on preaching and lots of uh, books on funerals, but none on preaching at funerals. I think the same is also true about um, preaching at weddings. Lots of books about weddings, lots of books about preaching, but bringing that, those two together and the very different circumstances there can be. You know, the first time, first marriage, where we're a couple who are naive, who really have no experience of life. A couple getting married later on for the first time or for the second time and so on. Yeah. Well, what do we have to do to make sure that gets published? <laughs> right to IVP. <laughs> We'd love to see yes. a compliment. <laughs> or buy lots of copies of There Is Hope. Buy one for your friends, buy one for everyone. Absolutely. Yes. <laughs> yes, indeed. Well, and uh, forgive me, I had said last question. Here's one more final one. So you've you've been preaching for decades and decades. And how are you currently trying to improve? I'm always learning. Um, I'm all, 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 always reading books uh, or going on to um, the internet 
to see how I might do this, that, or the other. Yeah. And so that, dare I say, there's a, there's a freshness in all the Bible studies I take and, and in all the sermons I preach, because the circumstances in which we live are always new. Yeah. 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 And I know that you have your uh, weekly blog at, at Church Matters, which we can kind of keep up with you a little bit on what are the things that you're thinking and even advising um, those uh, younger or or newer church leaders and appreciate the the swath, the wide breadth of, of your ministry and that you're not keeping these things to yourself, but trying to help the rest of us out. I'd like to encourage your listeners to sign up to Church Matters. You know, go on the internet, find it. And then if you sign up, free of cost, charge, of course, you will hear from me every Thursday. What a treat. Well, thank <laughs> what a treat. <laughs> well, so that, that means I have to write 50, 52 or 53 blogs a year. That is a real discipline. Yeah. Okay. Well, it's it's been a treat. And of course, there'll be a, a link in the show notes um, towards, uh, again, this, this funeral book, There is Hope. Um, the church matters and some of the other ancillary things that we've brought up in this conversation. There's, there's links for all of them. Uh, and so Paul, thank you so much for your time. And to the listeners of this podcast, I hope that uh, this episode and all that we do helps you to grow in your personal study and public proclamation of God's word. Uh, thanks so much, Paul. Thank you. Bye-bye. Well, thank you so much. Uh, thank you to Paul. I appreciate your insight. Thanks for letting us learn from your decades of experience. As I mentioned, there's a link in the show notes to his book, There Is Hope, published by InterVarsity Press. And also there's a link to an earlier episode that myself and Nick Cady did about preaching at funerals and ways to prepare our own heart and some more practical tips to make the experience as meaningful and significant and important as such an occasion deserves. All right. I hope that this episode and all that we do at the Expositors Collective helps you to grow in your personal study and public proclamation of God's word. 